Hello, YA fantasy and adventure fans, and welcome to episode two of Jordan Bartlett's Contest of Queens. My name is Jess, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. Previously on Contest of Queens. Connor's thirst for answers about the lower realm leads him to send a message beneath the clouds, which is discovered by Jax. Jax gets a shot at real change when Master Leishi offers her an apprenticeship. Is she ready for it? If you find yourself loving this book as much as we do, CamCat Unwrapped is hosting a giveaway this week, where one lucky winner will receive the full audiobook of Contest of Queens for free. All you have to do to enter is subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, or newsletter, and enter a quick survey, all of which are linked in our bio. Each new subscription is one entry, so make sure you enter for your chance to win this book to live in. Enjoy! Five. Fight or Flight. Jax dragged her feet slightly as she walked the dirt road toward the schoolhouse. She was engrossed in The Rise of the Fallen, a novel about Ikara Daedala, a Lorian orphan girl who discovers she is the daughter of an upright noble and ventures up the bridge to find her family. She had read the book twice before and knew that Ikara never completed her journey. She is injured near the top of the bridge and rescued by a Lorian couple who adopt her into their simple life in the lower realm. The book served as a warning to anyone foolhardy enough to try breaching the upper, but each time she read it, she could not help rooting for her futile endeavors. Maybe there was a sequel she had not heard about. Carefully, she ducked under an overhanging branch and stepped around a larger rock in the road, all the while never taking her eyes from the page. She absentmindedly played with the ring hanging from her neck, brushing the pad of her thumb across the engraving and slipping it on and off her finger. The road became steeper under her feet, and she followed them up the rise. The schoolhouse was at the bottom of the hill on the other side. She had just reached the part of her book where the girl talks with the first toll guard when a brutish voice cut into her concentration. Oi, bookhead! Quickly, Jack stuffed the necklace into her shirt, and reluctantly turned to see Mallard Wetler, son of the town baker, jogging to catch up with her. He was two years older than Jax. Although he was shorter than her, he made up for it in width and had the arrogance of a boy twice his height. Standing in front of her, he barred her path, folded his arms, and looked at her smugly, as though proud of the wit demonstrated through such a cutting remark. What, Mal, she said, deftly marking her place and moving to shove her book into her shoulder bag. What, no hello? Manners, farm girl. He made a tisking sound and shook his head. Suddenly, his arm shot out and he caught the book before she could stop him. Hey! Rise of the Fallen, eh? I didn't pick you for an upper sympathizer. What, think cause you got all them brains you're higher than the rest of us? Jax rolled her eyes. It's nice to see you expanding your vocabulary. Sympathizer, that's a mouthful even for your big gob. She crossed her arms to mirror Mallard and glared at him. What do you want? She repeated. Mallard glared at the book and thrust it back at her. 
Surprised, Jax took it from him and returned it to her bag. Mallard explained gruffly. Just thought we could walk to the schoolhouse together is all. Felt bad about last week, didn't I? Didn't think the pepper powder would be that bad. He paused, smiled, and then continued. And I didn't know about Casey's trick with the inkwell, honest. Jax felt her face grow hot at the memory of Mallard's prank, and she balled her hands into fists. No, thank you, she growled and tried to push past him. He stepped back and blocked her path. But I'm going that way too, let me say sorry. Jax tried to sidestep him, and he quickly blocked her again. You said sorry, I don't want to walk with you, now move, Mal. Or what? He grinned. A fire flickered behind his eyes, and she was suddenly aware of how empty the road was. Or I'll... She was cut short by the clanging of a bell. Mallard's head swiveled toward the sound, and she took her opening, ducking around him and sprinting up the hill. That was the five-minute bell, and Master Tremaine did not like tardiness. She heard Mallard yell, Hey! behind her, then the sound of heavy footfalls and heavier panting as he followed her up the incline. Jax had cleared the top, clutching a stitch in her side, and started down the other side of the hill when a sharp pain shot through the calf of her left leg and she felt it buckle underneath her. She heard a short, sharp, derisive laugh before her world began to slide from under her. Tripping, she tried to regain her balance, but her momentum and gravity carried her faster than her feet could gain ground under her. She felt herself flying very briefly, and then she was crashing, tumbling, bumping, and blundering down the rest of the hill. Her bag collided with her hip and jaw, then was ripped from her shoulder. The dirt from the road marked territory in her teeth and in the broken skin that striped her limbs. She rolled to a stop near the schoolhouse steps and lay with her eyes closed a moment longer while the world stopped spinning. She was faintly aware of her classmates' voices above her head. It's Jacqueline. What a tumble. Is she dead? Of course not, she's breathing. Is she? Yeah, look, she moved. She looks awful. Then a brisk voice cut across the chatter. Step back, children, inside at once. Take out your workbooks, write the date, and wait quietly. Now. There was a flurry of activity as Jax's classmates hurried to obey. Jax still had not moved, but she opened her eyes. Master Tremaine was leaning over her, a look of deep concern on her face. Jacqueline, she ventured, her tone much softer than it had been a moment before. Jax moaned and made to sit up, but oddly enough, she did not feel anything. Master Tremaine pushed her back down gently and murmured, Easy now, take your time. Try wiggling your toes for me. Jax did as she was asked, marveling at the lack of sensation. Now wiggle your fingers, there we go. She obliged in a daze. Then all at once, the pain hit her. It was as though pain had followed her down the hill and had needed a few seconds to catch up. Her eyes widened in shock, every muscle tensed, and she gasped for air. Her skin was on fire. Her breathing came in short, ragged bursts, and she felt hot tears prickle the corners of her eyes. To her horror, with her classmates still nearby, the tears began to spill down her cheeks. Everything felt bruised and raw. She was vaguely aware of Mallard as he slipped behind Master Tremaine and into the classroom. Her teacher began speaking in a soft, low voice. That's the girl, it's all right. You had a bit of a spill. Take a few deep breaths, there you go. We'll have you cleaned up in no time. 
Master Tremaine helped Jax to her feet. Jax inhaling sharply as she felt her raw skin stretch. Master Tremaine said over her head, Tara, I'm going to clean Jacqueline up. While I'm gone, you're in charge. Take attendance and start the class on the work I put up on the board. I'll be in the next room so I will hear any misbehavior. Yes, Master Tremaine, an older girl replied. And Casey, Master Tremaine continued, gather Jacqueline's bag and set it at her desk. Master Tremaine headed to a smaller room at the back of the schoolhouse with Jax limping along beside her. Stepping into the room, Jax sat on the small white bench that took up one wall and her teacher crouched down in front of her. Master Tremaine cupped her chin in her bony fingers and turned her head left and right, apparently surveying the damage. Then she looked over Jax's limbs, instructing Jax to move an arm, make a fist, and asking if certain points hurt when touched. When she was finished with the inspection, she exhaled slowly and clicked her tongue. You're lucky nothing's broken. I don't know how you managed such a fall. Jax sniffed and wiped at her eyes, looking about the room. The walls were painted white like the rest of the schoolhouse. There was a medicine cabinet in the corner of the wall opposite where Jack sat on the bench, and a small basin with a pitcher of water and some fresh rags in the other corner. Master Tremaine poured some of the water into the basin, dipped a clean rag into it, and began dabbing at Jax's cuts and grazes. Jax bit her lip as hot tears continued rolling down her cheeks. She could hear the muffled voice of Tara through the thin dividing wall between the two rooms, and did not want her classmates to hear her cry. Once her cuts were clean, Master Tremaine put an ointment on the worst of them and wrapped a bandage around a particularly painful one on her knee. The ointment burned worse than the water had, and Jack scrunched her eyes up tight. Almost done, there's a brave girl. There you go, that's the last of it. How do you feel? Master Tremaine asked. Jax looked at the bandage on her leg and gingerly touched her chin. She pulled back her fingers sharply as a twinge of pain shot along her jaw. Um, she began shakily. I've been better. Then, remembering her manners, thank you, Master Tremaine. Her teacher put the bandages and ointment back into the medicine cabinet and asked, Do you feel up to joining the class this morning? Jack slowly flexed her fingers. The pain was much less now. While she wanted nothing more than to curl up in bed and avoid talking to anyone, she had not had a chance to go to school all week and was conscious of falling behind. She looked up at her teacher and asserted, I think I'm okay now. I can join the class. All right, then I'll give you a few moments to collect yourself and I will see you in class. I must get back. Master Tremaine shot a nervous look toward the classroom. The noise level had risen, and Jax could hear Tara attempting to rein in a few of the more rambunctious students. Master Tremaine patted Jax gently on an unhurt spot on her arm, her brown eyes crinkled with worry. Then she straightened up, tucked her dusty blonde hair behind her ears, settled her dress, and left the room. She called above the chattering students. Now, any student out of their seat by the time I get to the chalkboard will stay behind after class to clean it. A series of scuffles and the scraping of chairs followed her words. Ah, thank you, Mr. Wetler, for volunteering. A satisfied smile spread across Jax's face briefly before turning into a grimace. She felt her left calf and winced as her fingers probed the already blossoming bruise. It was about the size of an apple. 
Jax thought about the laugh she had heard just before she fell. Lately, Mallard's laugh often came before her own pain or humiliation. But a theory is only as good as its proof, she whispered to herself. She still did not understand why the older boy had picked her for his punching bag, but she hated having to explain each new bruise, cut, or pepper rash to her mother. Panic gripped her as her hand flew to her neck. Fingers grazed the leather cord and followed it until she breathed a sigh of relief to feel the ring on the end. Carefully, she tucked it back under her shirt and patted it twice. She got unsteadily to her feet and attempted to dab water from the pitcher on her face. Her eyes felt hot. Taking one of the remaining clean rags, she dipped it into the pitcher and pressed the cold cloth into her closed eyelids. When she was finished, she dried her face, opened the door, and limped to her seat. Every head turned in her direction as she made her way down the rows of desks. The walk seemed to take a century, and she tried not to make eye contact with anyone. Several whispers followed her. It was going to be a long day. At least I'll get to see Master Leshy this afternoon, she thought grimly. Sitting down at her desk, she met Master Tremaine's eyes. Her teacher smiled at her and nodded before turning her back on the class and continuing to write on the board. As I was saying, our queendom is nestled between the queendom of Niza and the kingdom of Oster along the Uzalun Sea. The sea and two mountain ranges act as natural borders and, hopefully, a big enough barrier to invasion. But we have another natural border within our queendom, the cliff. Once, it was lined with five bridges connecting the two realms. That was until Queen Freya III decreed to sever all connections between upper and lower realms, save the one bridge you see today. Who remembers why? Several voices rang out at once. Because they're a bunch of snobs. Rich pigs? Da says it's because they don't like the dirt. Enough, Master Tremaine's voice rang out. The classroom fell silent. Master Tremaine looked furious, and Jax noticed, suddenly frightened. Her teacher's eyes darted to the soft glow of the large purple crystal on the wall above her desk and lingered there for several heartbeats. Slowly, Master Tremaine released the breath she had been holding, she turned to the class and said quietly, While I try to make this schoolhouse a safe space to learn, consider words can be treasonous, children. Your youth will not protect you in the eyes of those whose beliefs blind them. A few of the students looked around nervously. Many shot furtive looks toward the crystal. Master Tremaine continued in a shaky voice. The reason Queen Freya III cut all but one bridge Jax's shoulder bag was hanging off the back of her chair. She flipped open the flap and pulled out her books. Setting them on her desk, she froze. They were all sopping wet. Her novel, her class workbook, and the notebook she had brought for the afternoon's lesson with Master Leshy. She hurriedly searched in her bag for her water skin. It was stoppered and full. Turning back to her book, she peeled the sodden pages apart and heard a stifled giggle coming from behind her. She felt the blood rushing in her ears as, almost disbelieving, she inspected each book, willing at least one of them to be dry. She saw her carefully copied notes blurred and smudged on pages glued together. She saw her bookmark hanging out of the rise of the fallen limply, the words, Upper Dog, scrawled across the cover.
It was too much. She quietly closed each book, gathered them carefully in her arms, placed her bag on her shoulder, and stood up. Master Tremaine? Her voice came out calmly, but she felt a lump in her throat building and knew she needed to leave soon. Her teacher turned around, her sharp eyes taking in Jack's red face, packed bag, and dripping stationery, the latter of which was causing a wet spot to spread across her front. Jacqueline, what? Thank you for your help earlier, but I think I'll go home. She managed before turning and walking, head high, back down the row of students and out the door. Once clear of the schoolhouse, she allowed herself to cry. Hot, angry tears spilled down her face. Twice in one morning, she chided, a new record. Not wanting to go home and knowing that her mother did not expect her back until the evening, she decided to see if Master Leshy could start their lesson early. Dashing her tears away, she took a deep breath and headed into town. She found Master Leshy's house easily. It was a story higher than the rest of the houses in town and seemed to lean at an odd angle. There was a small garden in front filled with more metal contraptions and whirring machines than plants, although, Jacks noticed, there was an abundance of rosemary. The enticing spicy scent made her nose tingle. She watched a weather vane in the shape of a sparrow swing lazily in the light breeze. There was a small wind turbine that appeared to be powering a slowly rotating clothesline. A telescope hung like a soldier at ease in a corner of the garden, and Jax's eyes widened as she counted six large clocks in varying states of repair. One appeared to be working, one was clunking sporadically, another chimed suddenly in an off-key splutter, making her jump. The other three, missing cogs and hands, were silent and still. Carefully, Jax opened the low gate and stepped into the garden. She walked through the tangle of rosemary and machinery up to the front door, hesitated, and pulled the cord she supposed was the doorbell. A beautiful melody rippled through the slanted house, and she heard, Coming! Oof! Hold a minute! Then the door opened smoothly. Master Leshy, hair high in a bun filled with pens, quills, and what looked like a protractor, ink smudged down her right cheek, and an odd pair of glasses swinging from a chain around her neck, came into view. Ah, oh, Jacqueline, what a lovely... My goodness, what happened to you? Jax's smile faltered as Master Leshy looked her over in horror. She became aware of the still wet books clutched in her arms, the dirt in her hair, the bandage on her leg, the scrapes down her arms, and the still oozing wound on her chin. Oh, she did not quite know where to start. Come in, dear. My gracious, what a state you're in. Come, come. Come sit down and I'll make us some tea, shall I? Yes, tea always has a way of brightening a day, I say. She led Jax into a well-lit sitting room and made her sit in an overstuffed armchair while she pottered about in the kitchen, fetching a teapot, cups, and setting a kettle over a pot-bellied stove to boil. Jax looked about her in wonder. The room was full of books. Any wall that was not a window had a bookshelf on it. The small table in the middle of the room had a bookshelf underneath it, and books were stacked in piles beside each of the chairs. Whoa, she breathed. Master Leshy came back in with a tea tray and a plate of biscuits. Setting them on the table, she poured Jack's a cup, 
took the wet books out of her hands and replaced them with the hot beverage and a treat. Satisfied, she turned her attention to Jax's damaged books and flipped them over in her hands. Her hand hovered and trembled slightly over the defaced cover. She shook her head sadly and quietly repeated, What happened, dear? Jax took a deep breath and told her everything. Master Leshy let her talk and handed her a clean kerchief when needed without judgment. When Jax had finished, she hid her face in her teacup in embarrassment. This was not how she expected her first day as an apprentice to go. Master Leshy gave her a few moments to collect herself again, then simply said, Often the ignorant punish those who seek to broaden their minds. They are scared of the heights some dream to rise to and strive to pull them down. She set Jax's teacup on the table and took both of her hands in hers. You must remember, Jacqueline, you did nothing wrong. I commend you for your bravery and grace in such an unjust and cruel situation. Jax thought back on the blubbering spectacle she made of herself in front of everyone and blushed. As if reading her thoughts, Master Leshy reiterated, Yes, brave. Tears do not mean you are weak. Tears mean you feel. Nothing is gained from suppressing them. Jax nodded numbly. I can have a word with Master Tremaine about your education. A hostile learning environment is toxic, and it sounds like this is not the first time your studies have been interrupted by a peer's maliciousness. Maybe we can reach an agreement. Master Leshy trailed off as her thoughts took over her words. Jax took another biscuit while Master Leshy mulled some finer details over. She felt much better having told her. Suddenly, Master Leshy's eyes snapped back into focus, and she smiled broadly. But you're here, and we have more of this glorious day to spend together, so there's that silver lining to such an awful episode. Jax felt herself smile, too. What are we doing today? Already your questioning mind is at work. Brilliant! Today, being the first, I thought I'd show you around my workshop and introduce you to the clock project officially. Then we can talk about what interests you. She beamed. Me? Yes, it's important I know what you want to get out of this apprenticeship. No use in me teaching a fish how to fly. Unless, of course, you are a fish who wants to fly. Then I shall teach you how to make wings. Excitedly, Master Leshy jumped up. First things first. She chimed brightly, seizing the three waterlogged books from the table and inspecting them thoroughly. I think, her eyes darted to the still-hot stove and the wire drying rack above it. Let's try this, shall we? We just need to dry off the pages. Sure, they will be a little wrinkled, but at least they will be usable. Here, hold these. Together, Master and Apprentice walked into the kitchen. Master Leshy hung the books by their covers with the pages hanging through the drying rack over the stove. I guess time will tell, she mused, then turned back to Jax. Right, upstairs we go. I'll show you my, our, workshop. Jax felt excitement tingling through her like a current as they made their way up the stairs. Each step, she noticed, had a small pile of books at each end making the stairwell narrower. Once at the top, Jax looked around and felt her jaw drop to the floor. The entire upper story of the house was a workshop. 
Work tables littered with notes and books lined the walls. Large prototypes and models of structures perched on tabletops, hung from the rafters, and sat neatly in corners. Every available wall space, not occupied by a bookshelf, was plastered with blueprints, schematics, and labeled diagrams. A large birdcage with a chicken-sized mechanical bird inside stood on a stand in one corner. It quirked and spun its head intermittently. Three clocks labeled yesterday, today, and tomorrow were stacked on top of one another at odd angles and showed different times. Jax noticed that the hand on yesterday's clock spun much faster than the other two, as though time was speeding by more quickly. An abacus with white and blue beads was perched on a stool, and a set of copper scales had a lemon on one side, and a drawing of a lemon with its scientific name written out on parchment on the other. A porthole filled with a mirror reflected images upside down, and a clock small enough to fit around a person's wrist sat on a velvet pillow. Near the window, a spherical contraption with an open top and four handles or cranks held an enormous rosemary plant that filled the room with its fragrance. An odd assortment of tools littered the room, and Jack saw twice as many different writing utensils. It appeared Master Leshy was determined to have a pen at hand at any given moment. Feather quills, reed pens, charcoal, chalk, and what looked like sharpened sticks filled with a gray core littered the workbenches. The stairs emerged in the center of the room, and directly opposite was a large-scale model of the clock tower, only with aspects of the sketch she had seen that day at the waterfall added in. She was amazed to see that Master Leshy had already begun experimenting with a two-layered dome design. This is amazing, Jax exclaimed. This is, look at, and here you've got a, wow, Master Leshy laughed. That's not the first time a thought was left unfinished in this workshop. Let me show you around. The master spent the better part of the morning showing Jax the different projects she was working on and talked at greater length about the clock tower. She went over drawings and pages of her personal notebooks, finally standing in front of the scale model and pointing out the various features she had described. They discussed the logistics of the two domes, and the older woman pulled out small replicas of the roof she had built in a variety of different ways, each later model improving upon the flaws of its predecessor. Master Leshy listened as Jax voiced ideas and talked them through with her, sometimes helping her see a flaw in her plan, other times helping her push a good idea further. Jax did not even notice the time slipping by until she heard the front door open and shut with a bang, and Master Leshy, wincing, said, That'll be Philip home for lunch. Bull in a glass blower shop, that one. Let's join him, shall we? I'm a bit peckish myself. They settled with some sandwiches outside on three chairs made of mead barrels. Philip was both tall and broad, standing a head taller than his mother and much taller than Jack's. Bull seemed an apt descriptor. His hair was dark and wavy like his mother's. He had kind eyes and an easy smile. At 17, he was already working as an apprentice at Ms. Severin's Smithy. Jack smiled shyly when he introduced himself, but he shook her hand with such warmth her shyness evaporated in an instant. The smell of rosemary wafted in the heat of the day, and Master Leshy took a deep breath in, stimulates the mind, you know? Rosemary does. 
Rosemary for remembrance, they say, but that has entirely morbid connotations. To be more accurate, they should say rosemary for memory. Jax took a bite of her sandwich and watched a hummingbird hover around a small feeder, darting in and out quicker than she could blink. She felt the weight of the ring around her neck and thought again of the little boat falling down the waterfall. Gravity makes everything so easy, she mused. Out loud, she asked, how could you make something fly? Master Leshy looked at her thoughtfully. What kind of something? It would depend on the size and weight and where you wanted it to go. Jax chose her words carefully, still watching the hummingbird. Something willed her to keep the boat and the message a secret. Well, she began, say something light, nothing more than a folded piece of paper. Like a kite or a paper dart? Philip supplied with a mouthful of sandwich. Jax thought for a moment, then shook her head. No, they just glide and don't go up very high, she said. You'd need something to propel the contraption upward in that case, Master Leshy reasoned. And that would give you more control, added Jax. Right. Master Leshy did not seem as interested in where or why the question came about. She furrowed her brow to work out the thought experiment. You need something that creates its own lift. How high would you want it to go? She asked. Jax looked over at the towering cliff face. As high as possible, maybe even above the clouds? Philip smiled at her, making her blush, then stood up and dusted his hands free of crumbs. I know when it's time to leave the mines at work, he said, kissing his mother lightly on the cheek. I'm off to finish up at Severance. Nice meeting you, Jacqueline. Jack smiled and replied in kind. Don't be late, Master Leshy called as he set off down the path and waved over his shoulder. Master Leshy watched him go for a moment, then snapped her attention back to Jack's. You want it to go up? Hmm. Well, if it only has to go up, then we don't have to worry about a steering mechanism or an engine, really, Master Leshy said as she scratched her chin thoughtfully. Jax was thinking back to what she had heard in Master Tremaine's class the week before. Master Tremaine taught us that hot air rises. That's why you have to lie on the ground when there's a fire, because it's safer. So you're thinking of somehow harnessing hot air. Her teacher seemed to know the answer already, but was waiting for Jax to figure it out for herself. Jax nodded, unsure. Is that possible? Master Leshy grinned. Of course, she said encouragingly. But how would you do it? Jax began twisting a strand of hair around her finger as she voiced her thoughts. How to harness hot air? How do you contain air? Maybe something like a fire bellows? They can trap air. Good, but remember, we want it to be as light as possible. Right, so an airtight sack, something lightweight, maybe waxed canvas or a pigskin, Jack said. Better, Master Leshy conceded. And where does the hot air come from? Jack twirled her hair faster. Fire? A burning stick? No, too heavy and hard to control. A candle? Master Leshy was smiling. Very good. Now put them together, and how do you make it work? Jack scrambled to pull out the notebook Master Leshy had lent her to replace the wet one. 
Wordlessly, Master Leshy handed her a piece of charcoal from one of her many pockets, which Jax accepted with a nod of thanks. What if we put the canvas on top like an upside-down sack and put the candle to hang at the bottom, maybe from cords? The hot air will fill the sack and lift the whole thing up. Master Leshy smiled. You, my girl, have just created your own hot air balloon. Jax laughed with excitement as her mentor continued. It looks like we have a new afternoon project. They spent the rest of the day perfecting Jax's hot air balloon. When it was time for Jax to go, she had a notebook full of pictures, revisions, and a workbench full of prototypes, candles, and string. The final product was clutched in her arms like a baby, and she could not stop smiling. Beautiful, Master Leshy commented. Thank you so much. I can't wait to test it out, Jax said happily. And be sure to make note of your field trials, Master Leshy advised. We may make mistakes, but the least we can do is learn from them. Keep moving forward, I say. Master Leshy gestured toward the stairs and followed closely behind Jax. It's getting late, and I don't want your mother to be upset any more than those bandages are sure to make her. Let's get your things. Hopefully those books are dry. When they reached the kitchen, Master Leshy plucked a book from where it hung from the drying rack and leafed through the water-warped pages. Ah, well. Master Leshy said with resignation. Not good as new, but slightly more useful than they were wet. Not as bothered about the books anymore, Jax happily put them in her shoulder bag next to her new notebook. Thank you, Jax repeated as she hoisted the bag onto her shoulder and held on to the hot air balloon carefully. And thank you, dear Jacqueline. I think this arrangement will work out wonderfully. Now, I'm not sure how busy you are with work at home, so I will not hold you to a set day, but come when you can. As I mentioned before, I will talk with Master Tremaine. There are things I am able to teach you here to make up for any missed lessons at the schoolhouse. Most women start funneling into more specialized occupations and studies around your age anyway. While I'm at it, I can sort something out about that Wettler boy. Jax began to protest, her face reddening at the thought of what Mallard and his friends would make of her running to the teacher, but Master Leshy cut her off and assured, Not to worry, dear, it'll be done with the utmost discretion. Not quite convinced, but not sure what to do about it, Jax bid her farewell and began the walk home, cradling the hot air balloon in her arms. Her thoughts shifted to her mission, how to send a letter to Connor. She just hoped that tomorrow was a still day, that the balloon would catch in a tree or snag in a place where he would see it, that the candle stayed lit the whole way up, and that, oh, goodness, her mind reeled at all of the factors against her. Then, her mouth set in a determined line, she resolved to make trial one, flight of the fallen, commence the next day. Six. Full of hot air. Several weeks had passed since Connor and Queen Ariel had looked out over the expanse of the queendom. As promised, his lessons had intensified even more. Master Cleo had taken it as a personal insult to have her teachings questioned and had seen to it that the prince's nose only left the grindstone to sleep, eat, and sneeze occasionally. He somehow managed to escape her lectures for an entire afternoon and had a feeling Edith had something to do with it. 
When a small flood had accidentally plagued his study, she had been ready with a fresh pair of socks, his knapsack filled with lunch, and his exploring gear. Go, she whispered with a wink. He would have to find a way to thank her. For the moment, Connor was making the most of his unexpected freedom on the cliff's edge. He leaned his head back and bit into a fresh-baked cookie. Sitting against one of the larger trees next to the waterfall, he had sent his little boat over some weeks before. He looked out across the queendom. His view was slightly obscured by the large oak tree at the mouth of the river, but he did not need to get that close to the edge again. He watched a tiny wagon trundling its way around one of the larger hills, its rider too small to make out from so far away. Dusting off the crumbs that had fallen on his tunic, he reached for a second cookie when a sudden breeze whipped up and movement in the branches above him caught his eye. His hand froze midway to his mouth, cookie forgotten. What on earth? He muttered to himself. Craning his neck and shielding his eyes, he saw a white canvas balloon hanging in the oak tree at the edge of the cliff. It appeared to have a small candle, still lit, hanging underneath it that swayed in the air. Slowly, he crept toward the cliff edge. Holding fast to the oak, he reached up, standing on tiptoe, to where the balloon hung just beyond his fingertips. Gripping a lower branch tightly, he leaned forward out into the void. His fingertips barely brushed the canvas. He used a word he had heard Master Lupolo, the brewmaster, use when she cut her hand on a broken glass. Looking around, he saw a long, forked branch on the ground. Carefully, he grabbed it and, still holding on to the oak, wrapped it in the strings hanging from the little balloon. Still not daring to look down, he worked the balloon free so that it now dangled from his branch. Once he had it, he ran backward, away from the edge to where his pack lay, breathing hard. Ow! He yelped and quickly blew out the candle. A small metal shield had protected the flame from the wind, and it, Connor found out, was extremely hot. Settling back down and sucking his forefinger, he looked at the contraption in his hands. He had never seen anything like it. He inspected the canvas of the balloon, looked at the little basket and shield, carefully, that had housed the candle, and tested the strength of the strings holding it all together. He lifted the basket up to inspect the bottom and, to his delight and increasing wonder, saw a little scroll of parchment tied to it. His hands shook with excitement as he untied the scroll, placed the balloon carefully on the ground beside him, and began to unroll it. Eagerly, he read, To Connor. This is my seventh attempt to get a message back to you, so if you are reading this, I am pleased to finally make your acquaintance. I'm Jax. I'm 13, and I am an inventor's apprentice. I'm so excited that this should reach you, as it means I did it. I got your ship, the Endeavor, eight weeks ago and have been trying to reply once a week ever since. In your letter, you had a lot of questions. I'll try to answer them all. For work, we do a lot of things. The men usually stick to the heavy lifting and manual labor they're good at, while us women are able to do a lot of different things. For fun, I like to build things, read, play with my cat, go fishing, things like that. I live on my farm in a small house, but most people live in town, in Bridgeport. It's a nice town. It's got a beautiful clock tower I'm helping to redesign. 
I'm not sure what your houses are like, but mine's definitely not a palace. What's it like living in the palace? What do you do there? We really aren't told much about what upright life is like. I only really know about the bridges, and I can see the bridge from my house. We don't even have books that talk about what it's like up there. I know that the queen and king visited when the prince was born, but I wasn't around for that, and we only see people from the upper realm during trade week. All those beautiful gold carriages almost don't seem real. Is there really that much gold up there? I hope to be your friend, and I always wear your ring. I've had trouble losing the hot air balloons, so we'll wait until I have a better model before I send something up for you. I have some questions for you, too. What's it like living in the upper realm? Have you met the queen? Tell me more about yourself. How old are you? What do you and other upperites like to do for fun? Please note down in your reply, if you reply, what flight number you got so I know which hot air balloon worked. I hope to hear from you. Your friend, Jax Tabart, flight test number seven. Connor read the letter over twice more and felt his heart lift. It worked. The endeavor made it, and he was lucky enough that an inventor found it. He had not considered how hard it would be for a Lorian to get a message back to him. Carefully, he placed the hot air balloon in his knapsack and gathered the rest of his things. He needed to reply as soon as possible. And she was wearing his ring. It had made it all the way down in one piece. He needed another boat, maybe a less elaborate one to save time. He did not want his new friend to waste more trials considering he had only just received number seven. A message from the lower realm. This must be a first in history. Connor flew on feet that barely touched the grass all the way to the castle. Sneaking up the servant's entrance, he made his way back to his room, locked himself in, and started writing a reply. He made up his mind not to tell her he was the prince. He liked that she thought he was an ordinary person. When people know your royalty, they act different, he thought. Loading his pen with ink, he pulled a piece of parchment toward him. Dear Jax, he began. Seven, the twos and frums. Tell me more about the clock tower you're building, Connor had asked in his reply. Jax, working in the extended twilight under the glow of two candles, scratched away at her letter furiously. It's an amazing opportunity, and I'm so thankful to Master Leshy. Not that I don't love being able to help Mom on the farm, but a lot of that work is boy work, which I'm not really built for. And I love that I get to use my hands and my brain with the work I'm doing for Master Leshy. And hopefully this means I won't be working on the farm all my life. The clock tower is so interesting. I get to work on the building plans and also the plans of the clock's mechanisms. Jack skimmed over the next two pages of detailed outlines of the clock tower project excitedly. She had included a simplified diagram to show her new friend how she was helping with the domed roof's design and a quick sketch of what the completed building would look like. Finishing, she wrote, Your friend, Jax, Flight 2. Folding the letter into a tight parcel, she slipped it into the little slot built into the base of the candle's basket. The basket hung from cords attached to the balloon, and a small metal screen shielded the flame from the wind. 
She finished squeezing the letter into place and realized it was almost too thick to fit. I'll have to adapt the design if these letters keep getting longer, she thought. Connor's next boat, a blue one, got caught in a swirling eddy within the makeshift harbor of rocks Strax had built on one side of the river near the base of the waterfall. It contained an equally excited reply. Your clock tower looks incredible. We have a clock tower like yours in the city. It is bigger, although I think yours will have more personality than ours once it's done. Ours is very white, and the clock has big gold numbers. But there is a bookshop nearby that is my favorite. It has a secret room behind a bookshelf with all the queendom's maps in it. Not many people are allowed in it, but I'm one of the prince's servants, so when he goes, I get to go too. It's incredible to me that we feel so important in our lives, but when you look at a map, a whole city can be reduced to a dot on a page. I can't fit a lot of pages in my boats, but here's a rough drawing of the map of the queendom. I couldn't fit many place names, but I marked the palace and your town. I was speaking with Master Cleo, the prince's tutor, and she said that part of Queen Freya III's laws meant that the lower realm was stripped of all information about the upper realm. That doesn't seem fair. Everyone should know what their queendom looks like. So you might not want to show anyone in case it gets you into trouble, but here it is. Your friend, Connor. Voyage 3. It wasn't long before Jax was finding any excuse to sneak off to the waterfall to look for little boats caught in the reeds, or to the cliff with a hot air balloon wrapped in her arms to send up. Much of her wages from working with Master Leshy went toward canvas, candles, and parchment every month. Her mentor assumed her apprentice was simply perfecting an already perfect design. I see so much of myself in you, Jacqueline, she would say warmly when Jax brought another set of drawings to life. Although there was still no accounting for sudden changes in weather, Jax eventually was able to account for most of the other factors working against her little balloon's flights. She found a crevice within the cliff face that ran just about the entire length to the top, almost directly below a large tree with branches and roots hanging out over the edge of the cliff. This little three-sided chimney helped guide the balloons three-quarters of the way up the rock with very little interference. Once free of the fissure, there was only a short distance to the tangled limbs of that great tree. While it wasn't a perfect solution, it did significantly increase the chance of a successful flight. To make sure she retrieved Connor's boats, and to reduce her time spent fishing for them, Jax had spent several months weaving a net that spanned the entire river from bank to bank a short distance from the base of the waterfall. Then all she had to do was reel the net in to collect the little vessels. The added benefit was that sometimes she also caught dinner. Through Connor's eyes, her life had taken on a shimmer, an almost glamorous sheen. He found even the most mundane of things, like milking Brindle, to be worthy of her one or two paragraphs of explanation. She hadn't realized how many of her daily activities or interactions she took for granted until she began explaining them to a prince's servant, who, obviously, never really left the palace. His world was equally mysterious. Considering he served the prince, Connor spent very little time talking about him or the royal family. Unless asked specifically, he tended to want to talk about other things. That was fine by Jax. The day-to-day -day palace life was interesting enough to fill tomes. 
One letter appeared in early spring and had Jax's imagination spinning. We had a gala for the queen last night. A troop of entertainers came to the palace and performed for everyone. These men were incredible, throwing each other into the air and catching one another without even flinching, and they weren't little mice either. Everyone was having a wonderful time until one of the dancers brought Lord Sybil Claustrum into the middle of the room to join their dance. Lord Claustrum is one of the most influential lords in the queendom. Now, they may or may not have known who they were dealing with, but they most certainly did not know that her genteel, Bravnan Claustrum, is notoriously jealous. So Lord Claustrum is twirling with the head troop member, and Bravnan is getting redder and redder in the face, but he's not going to defy his lord. So finally, he cuts in and begins dancing with the troop member himself. The dancer, with a sly grin on his face, dips Bravnan low, then throws him into the air as he had done the other men in his troop before. Bravnan panics, and what should have been a graceful landing ended up more like a tangled mess on the floor. Anger's fire took him then, and he began yelling at the dancers. Lord Claustrum, deeply embarrassed, ordered her guard pair to escort her genteel out while he calmed down, then followed shortly after. To make matters worse, the troop thought the whole thing was hilarious and reenacted it as a farce later that evening. Do you have galas or balls in Bridgeport? I imagine they look quite different from ours. Do you like to dance? Your friend, Connor, Voyage 17. Months passed, and Jax found herself feeling closer to this boy living miles above her than she did any of her peers in town. They shared their secrets, their hopes, and their ideas to make the queendom a better place. After an early frost spoiled the season's last harvest of tomatoes, Jax reasoned, if the queen was required to visit the lower realm at least once a year, she could check in on us farmers and make sure our taxes were lowered on years when the crops are bad because of frost or drought or flood. Farmers shouldn't be punished for something they have no control over. To which Connor replied, Since we don't have any farms in the upper realm, outside of little vegetable gardens, I think, I doubt the queen or the council of four really even think about stuff like that. It's crazy that their decisions affect people who lead such different lives. They didn't always agree. The best cup of tea is made by steeping the leaves first, then adding milk and honey, Jax wrote one bitterly cold winter morning. His response was so infuriating that it was enough to warm her without the need of a fire. No, you add the milk first so that you know how much milk is going into it, then you add the leaves in the hot water, he replied. That's disgusting, she wrote. Then you're partially steeping your tea leaves in milk, and that just seems, I don't know, but it's gross. What's the difference, he scribbled back. It ends up the same anyway. This way you have more control over the amount of milk you're using. But despite who was right or wrong in their matters of debate, they always found ways to be there for each other when it counted. A few months after their tea-making disagreement, Jax found the contents of her letter about a particularly stubborn cog in the clock's mechanism shift to her worry about her mother. The cog just won't move. That seems to be a theme around here, unfortunately. Mum hasn't been able to leave her bed the last two days. It happens every year. Usually it only lasts the few days before and after the anniversary of when I lost Dad. I don't know what it is about this year, but she won't get up unless I make her. 
I think the cog's an easier fix. His reply had been just the right assortment of words. Jax, that sounds awful. I doubt that the strategy you use with the cog will be effective with your mother. Matters of the heart rarely have blueprints. I can't imagine what it's like to have lost someone so important, and I know you are trying to be strong for the both of you. Something my mother does every year on the anniversary of her brother's death is take my father and I to her favorite spot with a bottle of champagne. We sit as the sun sets, toasting his life and sharing our favorite memories of him. I was young when he left us, but I still remember him showing me how to bridle my own horse. As the sun sinks behind the distant mountains, it feels like he's sitting on the lawn with us. That seems to bring my mother peace. That evening, she bundled her mother in a warm shawl and settled her in her father's seat beneath the weathered old apple tree. They clutched hot mugs of peppermint tea, one with a splash of something stronger. Her mother's eyes were distant. Jax had brought her father's fiddle out with her. They sat for a while in silence. Tuning the fiddle in the extended twilight, Jax felt the instrument come alive in her hands, and she began to play. Her mother sat quietly through the first song. Through the second song, silent tears rolled down her cheeks. Fingers blundering through one of her father's favorites, Jax watched as her mother's brow cleared, then the corners of her mouth lifted. In a soft, wavering voice that grew stronger with each syllable, her mother began to sing. It was the first time Jax had heard her sing since her father's death. The melody soared, lilting and weaving between the overhead branches and dancing in the evening breeze. Jax heard her father's laugh as a harmonic within each chord, saw his smile in each sweeping bow stroke. In the dying light, they were a family again, whole and happy. Connor's gifts were not only written. On her 14th birthday, he sent her a single griffin feather, it was as white as snow and edged in golden dust. A short note read, Happy birthday, Jax. One day I will take you to meet the court. If I could be queen for a day, I would choose today and make it a law that everyone on their 14th birthday got the chance to ride with the griffins. Jax had smiled at that and held the feather before her reverentially. The next day, she asked for Master Leshy's help to fashion it into a feather quill, then wrote her thanks with her new stardust pen. It was sometime after receiving the griffin feather that she noticed her feelings toward Connor start to change. The changes were small at first. A spring in her step would accompany her to the pool beneath the waterfall. A tiny frown would appear and then quickly vanish at the mention of his latest Twitter patient. In one letter, he wrote about how amazing a guard named Ileana was at fighting, then in another about how prettily Dame Claustrum danced at a recent gala, and in another about his nerves at the prospect of riding with a young guard who was fast becoming a candidate for knighthood and even the Soterian Medal. When this happened, she assured herself she wasn't jealous, that she was just concerned for him as he tended to give his heart to those who were reckless with it. However, she couldn't deny that her spirits would inevitably lift to hear when he had moved on. Then the changes grew. Her heart would beat faster to see a little boat caught in her nets, 
A smile would make her cheeks ache as she read his letter through once, then twice to make sure she hadn't missed anything important. On a crisp spring morning, Brindle gave birth to a calf with a perfect heart-shaped marking on her forehead, and she found herself wanting nothing more than to tell Connor about this little miracle. With every balloon she sent skyward, a part of her would ache to follow its course. She began fantasizing about one day standing beside him on the same ground. Would he be taller than her? How would his hand feel in hers? And when her heart felt like it might burst, a little voice inside whispered cautiously, did he feel the same? She tried to look for clues of his feelings in his words, then in the spaces between them. Once, when she was sick, she mentioned that Philip had brought a bouquet of daisies to cheer her up. Connor's reply had been curiously prickly. He had included an elaborately detailed sketch of an exotic flower she had not seen before. Who is Philip? Master Leshy's Philip? Isn't he a bit older than you? I guess you spend a fair bit of time together. He sounds great. If I were there, I would get you a bouquet of these. The royal greenhouse is one of the few places that can grow them properly. I guess daisies are good too, though. The next few letters afterwards had included an iteration of the question, so how's Flower Phil? Until she clarified he was more of a brother to her. After that, he didn't mention Philip again, and his tone brightened significantly. Or was that just her imagination? On her 15th birthday, after hearing that she wore his ring on a cord around her neck to keep it safe, he sent her a finely wrought gold chain. The last lines of his letter read, You deserve the world today, but because it won't quite fit in my boats, this will have to do. A chain of gold to match your heart. Happy birthday, Jax. Yours, Connor. Voyage 86. Jax had blushed so deeply that when she returned from the river with the boat clutched to her chest and his words ringing in her ears, her mother had checked her forehead for a fever. A gold chain was a precious gift indeed. She supposed an upright palace servant was paid much more handsomely than a Lorian inventor's apprentice. Despite her modest income, she did her best to reciprocate. For his 16th birthday, she saved her wages to buy cords of leather and a delicate silver clasp formed to look like a griffin's head. She wove the cords into a band long enough to circle a boy's wrist and attach the clasps. When worn, the griffin looked like it was holding the bracelet together with its beak, the opposite clasp in its mouth. She had used Philip's wrist for measurements, and he had spent the next week pestering her for information about her mysterious sweetheart. Now I have something to recognize you by, she wrote. The next lines had been practiced on a different sheet, crossed out, rewritten, and scribbled over, until finally she copied the result into the letter. I can't wait for the day that I get to meet you in person. I still can't believe how lucky I am to know you. You have my heart, Connor. It seems so wild to say since I only know you from your words. But I am yours, Jax, Flight 175. Eight, long live the queen. Jax, now 16, was finishing up her most recent letter. 
She had wound her long auburn hair in a bun, like Master Leshy always did, with two pencils holding it in place. She was a foot taller since she'd written her first letter and moved with a confidence that had grown steadily while working with Master Leshy. Spring was finally upon them, and the sun shone through the open windows. A cool breeze fluttered the papers in front of her. She scratched away at her letter, her battered griffin feather quill running across the page as quickly as she could translate thought. Today, she was describing her most recent project with Master Leshy. A flock of starlings had perched on the hands of the town clock and set it back five minutes. You wouldn't think five minutes was enough to make or break people, but there you go, she wrote. They had decided to simply reset the clock, strengthen the mechanism that became damaged in the stall, and if such a freak occurrence should happen again, possibly find a way to cover the large clock face. She also wrote of her excitement to see the royal family that afternoon. Of course, I'm not likely to meet them personally, but I will get to see them as they walk through the town, and even just to watch the royal procession as it comes down the bridge will be so incredible. She paused thoughtfully and added, 50 years since the Great Divide. If I'm honest, a part of me is very excited and a part of me is terrified. I won't say too much because I'm not one to spread gossip, but the whole town feels like a powder keg. Street fights have increased since preparations for the diversary began. People seem to be rallying into two camps, and I don't really know if it's worse being called an upper dog or being praised as a true Lorian. I don't know if I'm just being paranoid, but the amount of guard pair patrols has definitely increased in the last month. Regardless, it will be a treat to finally see royalty. But above all, I can't believe we finally get to meet. Jax could barely contain her excitement at the thought. As a servant in the palace, Connor had mentioned that he would be joining the royal procession. She knew to look for him and that he would be wearing the bracelet she had made him. She had told him in her last letter that she would be standing below the clock tower, dressed in yellow and wearing his ring. She hoped it would be enough for them to find each other. Smiling, she touched the ring where it hung in its usual place around her neck. It felt warm against her fingertips. Shrugging her shoulders to stretch them, she felt a small pop and sighed with relief. She had been hunched over her letter for about an hour without moving. Skimming over her words again, she finished, I hope you are well. Until our next, yours, Jax, Flight 213. Jacqueline, I hope you're getting ready. The dissension is set to start at noon and we want to get a good spot, her mother called from halfway across the yard. Jax could see her through the window. She had just finished hanging the laundry and had the basket on her hip. Quickly, Jax hid the letter safely between the pages of the nearest book. Standing, she stretched her back and hurriedly pulled the pencils out of her hair to braid it in a style her mother preferred. She pulled on a dress she had mended specifically for the occasion. It was yellow ochre with a white underskirt and a deep sienna bodice. Last, she made sure Connor's ring on its gold chain had pride of place around her neck. Holding the ring between her fingers, she shifted it this way and that, admiring the way it caught the sunlight. Her mother came into her room and beamed. You look lovely, Plum. My, how much you've grown. Your father, she paused delicately. 
He would be very proud to see you now. Jax blushed and gave her mother a tight hug. Thanks, Mom. But please let me fix your hair. It looks like a bird has made its nest on the top. Jax, containing the urge to roll her eyes, poked her tongue out playfully instead and sat down. Her mother happily picked up her brush and set to work, chattering all the while. Jax was only half listening. A part of her mind was still on the letter she had just finished, and the other part of her mind was occupied with thoughts of seeing the queen. And Brindle is getting on in her years. She's starting to show her age, and I'm not sure we'll get many more years of milk from her. Her last calf was quite sickly, and- Ow! Jax jerked her head away from her mother's rough brushing. Sorry, Plum, hold still. Almost done. There. She took a step back to admire her work. No bird in there, I should think not. Jax felt the intricate plate and took her mother's word for it. Thanks, Mum, she said again. All right, you're set, I'm set, let's go. Her mother clapped her hands and started for the door. The two women made their way out the front gate and along the dirt road heading into the town. Her mother tried to persuade Jax that the best place to watch the dissension was on the hill before the schoolhouse. But Jax, thinking of her promise to meet Connor, insisted that if they wait there, they would miss getting a good spot by the clock tower to see the parade. Plum, we would see the parade from the roadside on the hill anyway, she reasoned. But it's better to be in the middle of it all, Mum, Jax insisted, then compromised. Why don't we watch them come halfway down the bridge from the hill? Then we can head into town and wait while they finish the dissension. I'm going to bet the second half will be the same as the first half, just lower down. She grinned. Her mother relented. Oh, all right. They found a spot at the top of the hill, and they were not the only ones with the same idea. Jax waved to Ms. and Mr. Grimsby. Good morning, she called happily as she and her mother joined them. Good morning, Jacqueline. Good morning, Maria, Mr. Grimsby replied, flashing a brilliant smile, his teeth a stark contrast against his dark skin. Going to be quite the show. This will be my third dissension, and I tell you, each time is better than the last. From their vantage point, they could see the bridge clearly in the distance, where it zigzagged its way up the cliff face. Miss Tabart spread out a shawl on the ground, and she and Jack sat down to wait. The Grimsbys sat nearby and exchanged pleasantries with Ms. Tabart. Jax was too excited to listen. Her eyes were glued to the bridge, watching, waiting. She heard the town clock begin to strike noon. Five minutes slow, she thought. They should have started by now. Do you hear that? Her mother asked, cutting into Ms. Grimsby's comment about lavender. The party of four listened. There was a distinct sound of drums echoing down the valley, steady as a beating heart. Jax narrowed her eyes and squinted at the top of the cliff. There they are, she cried. Impossibly tiny in the distance, the royal carts and carriages were at the top of the bridge and making their way steadily down. The dissension had started. Jax counted ten bright carriages and tried, but failed, to count the smaller carts and people on foot. She did not envy those foot soldiers. Hopefully none of them get vertigo, she thought. Everyone watched in silence as the procession marched to the end of the first length. Then one at a time, each carriage was lowered by the elevator to the second length. 
How long does a dissension usually take? She asked. Hmm, quite a while, depending on how big the parade is, if there's any hiccups, and if all the lifts run smoothly, Ms. Grimsby answered, her husband looking slightly put out that she had answered as an authority on the matter. He had seen three in his lifetime, after all. And then what happens? They march the procession into the town? I heard there was going to be dancing. Mr. Grimsby jumped in. Dancing, yes, of course. They make their way into the town. Everyone gawks and gapes. They stay at the inns, and some of the servants set up camp in the surrounding fields. Then, when night falls, we all gather for a feast, music, and dancing. Marop and I danced for the first time at the last dissension. His eyes became misty as he looked at his wife. Ms. Grimsby giggled and swatted his hand playfully. I remember you were the most handsome man in the square. I was so delighted when you asked me to dance that I didn't even notice you had two left feet until I took my shoes off later that night. Worse bruises you have never seen. Even Mr. Grimsby laughed at that. Their smiles died quickly as snatches of conversation darted up the hill behind them. Yeah, but it still stings like a brick to the face. The nerve of these uppers waltzing down the bridge, rubbing our noses in their finery, then toddling back up. Bunch of pricks. Jax's head turned to see a large group of people climbing up the hill. She saw Mallard Wetler and his mother, Patricia. Benjamin Sternwall, but no sign of his daughter, Casey, and four other families from town, the Bankses, the Orions, the Vaultleys, and the Severins. Mallard had shot up and out over the years, Jax noticed. She rarely saw him anymore. Since her education had been taken over by Master Leshy, there was no reason for them to cross paths except accidentally. Miss Tabart eyed the newcomers warily. Then her eyes darted back to the bridge, and she exclaimed, Jacqueline, that looks like halfway down to me. Let's go into town and get a good spot for the parade. She attempted to keep her voice light, but it was edged with warning. The Grimsbys took their cue. Ah, yes, now that's a marvelous idea, Maria. Why don't we accompany you? Before the two groups had a chance to interact, Jax was being whisked down the hill toward town. When they were safely out of earshot, Jax asked, Mom, I have to check something with Master Leshy. Can I meet you in the square? Ms. Tabart glanced behind her. Okay, we'll be by the fountain. Don't be too long. Her mother kissed her on the cheek. Jax gave her a quick squeeze and darted off to Master Leshy's house. Ms. Tabart watched her run into the crowd and disappear down a side street. Jax bounded up to the front door and pulled the doorbell. Just a moment, coming, coming, came a slightly strangled response. Jax waited patiently as she heard her mentor thumping down the stairs. Philip beat her to the door. Hello, Jacqueline, you look nice today, he said happily. Hi, Philip, thanks. I just came to see if you and Master Leshy were coming to watch the parade. They're just about finished with the dissension. Master Leshy came into view behind her son. Hello, Jacqueline, lovely dress. What's this? Jax repeated her inquiry, and Master Leshy slapped a hand to her forehead. Philip, I knew I was forgetting something. Of course that's today. I've been so wrapped up in, well, 
Come have a look. We still have time. Philip, go put on a colorful tunic. It's the 50th anniversary Today! How I let that slip my... Oh, never mind. Follow me, follow me. She led a bewildered Jax up the staircase into the workshop while Philip dashed into another room to change. I've been working on that escapement to keep the town clock on time since you left yesterday afternoon. As you remember, the biggest problem with our town clock is its size. Hand weight variability, wind, rain, and flocks of starlings can affect the wheel train, which sets the clock back and brings the whole town down on our heads. Jax nodded as Master Leshy pulled out a notebook and continued. So, that got me thinking, why don't we extend these arms within the mechanism itself like so and use a small weight here, she indicated the respective points on her diagram, and let gravity and the swing of the pendulum reset the weights rather than the wheel train. That way, the escapement itself is not affected by variations in the drive force, Jax finished excitedly. Precisely, Master Leshy beamed. Incredible, that sounds. A blast from a trumpet cut through their discourse. The procession, she squeaked. Quick, Master Leshy, or we'll miss it. Right you are. Let's find Philip. Master Leshy grabbed a blue-gray cloak off of a nearby model of a pedal-powered boat, threw it around her shoulders, and they both hurried down the stairs. Philip was waiting by the door, his round face beaming above the collar of a green tunic. He had even run a wet comb through his hair so that it tucked neatly behind his ears. Master Leshy patted his cheek affectionately at the sight of him. He opened the door. My mother said she would wait by the clock tower in front of the fountain, Jack said, anxiously looking toward the sounds of the procession. Lead the way, said Master Leshy as she fished in her large pockets for a key to lock the front door. With the sound of trumpets and drumbeats getting steadily louder, they raced to the town square to find Ms. Tabart and to catch a glimpse of the royal family. The town square was packed with people dressed in a myriad of colors. Ms. Tabart was standing on tiptoe looking out over the crowd and waved to Jax, Master Leshy, and Philip when she spotted them. The three latecomers squeezed and pushed their way over to her. Just in time, she breathed. Look! Mr. Bart indicated the cleared main road. Two trumpeters flanked a lone drummer. They were dressed in bright yellow livery edged with gold and blue embroidery. The heralding trio urged the townspeople on the side of the road to step back. People jostled and ripples formed in the crowd as they attempted to clear the way. Jax held her breath, noting that she was not the only one who did so. The town square itself seemed to draw a deep, collective breath in as the first carriage rounded the corner at the end of the street and came into view. The carriage glittered like a star and made some people shield their eyes. Golden carriages glided down the street, putting even the town goldsmith's display window to shame. The horses were a motley crew, some brown, others beige, some with black manes and tails, others shining a deep auburn in the sunlight. All proud and noble-looking beasts, and all with golden bridles studded with sapphires. Guard pairs flanked each carriage and were spaced evenly down the line, the only ones relatively unadorned and unsmiling, their eyes darting around the crowd, small decorative gold gilt shields held at the chest on their left arms, daggers sheathed at their hips. Their leather armor was light and simple, 
though oiled to a shine for the occasion, and each woman had her hair tied in a tail down her back or in a twist at the nape of her neck. Eyes moving from the guard pairs and back to the carriages, Jack squeezed her mother's arm. She had never in her life seen such splendor before, and the carriages, carts, and musicians seemed to just keep coming down the road. Smaller carts filled to the brim with rose petals were interspersed between the larger carriages, their drivers tossing handfuls of the fragrant petals into the crowd. Musicians with instruments Jacks had never seen before played perfectly in time, despite the absence of a conductor and being spread out along the line. The music was beautiful, and Jacks felt a warm bubble of euphoric laughter build in her chest until it burst from her, unbridled. Her mother was laughing too and clapping along with the intricate melody. Several carriages passed by where Jack stood with her friends and family, her hair now full of petals, when an excited hush spread down the length of the street. The queen, people whispered down the line. Jax craned her neck even more to see over the heads of those in front of her. She stood on the edge of the fountain for a better view. Suddenly, she saw them. The queen, flanked by the king and the prince, rode on horseback between the last two carriages. The queen rode on a palomino, the king on a blue roan, and the prince on a chestnut. They wore navy blue velvet edged with gold trim and had gold capes draped across their shoulders. The queen's riding gown was embellished with gold studs that made her look as though she were wearing a night sky filled with stars. Her hair flowed behind her in a luxurious ribbon and glistened like spun sunbeams. A golden crown glittered above her temples. Two banner bearers followed her, holding the queen's coat of arms, a roaring lion under a large oak tree. Jax was struck by how close the royal family was to the adoring masses. She could reach out and almost touch them, yet somehow they were an entire world away. Her eyes fell on the prince and her breath caught in her throat. He sat confidently in his saddle, his cape much shorter than even his father's, as was befitting a prince, and tied from one shoulder under the opposite arm. A simple gold circlet nestled in his windswept hair, and a flash of silver glinted at his wrist. His eyes searched the crowd, and for the briefest moments their eyes met, and he smiled at her. She felt the blood rush to her cheeks. He's quite handsome, isn't he? Her mother teased in her ear. Mom, Jax giggled and unconsciously twisted a strand of hair around her finger. The procession made its way around the fountain in the middle of the square and passed under the town clock. Jack stretched up on tiptoe, her hand resting lightly on her mother's shoulder to keep balanced. She noticed the procession stop and craned her neck to see two figures in purple hooded cloaks standing in its path. There was a guttural chorus of, Level the upper! Jax craned her neck toward the sound and saw several more hooded figures step out onto the scaffolding around the large clock face. The music faltered, then stopped. The upperites and Lorians looked around nervously. In the sudden silence, Jax saw the cloaks on the scaffolding part and a lone figure with a bow step forward. Her eyes darted back to the queen. She heard a bowstring tighten and release. A sickening thud strangled a scream. The king, the prince, and the queen's guard sprang into action too late. 
Already her body was arcing around the arrow, red blooming like a rose around a fletched stem. Jax's eyes widened in shock as the queen fell. She heard the prince's cry of anguish, a single broken note, and everyone started screaming. The crowd thrashed and writhed like an angry snake. Jax was jostled, pushed from the edge of the fountain, and almost thrown to the ground. Pain shot up from her foot as someone shoved past her. She reached for her mother and grasped a stranger's elbow. Taking a hasty step back, she collided with someone, then was slammed forward. Bodies rushed past and were pressed against her from all sides. Panicking, she looked around frantically. Mom, she called with dozens of other voices, some calling for loved ones, but many repeating iterations of the unbelievable truth. The queen is dead. Jacqueline, here. Philip's large form filled her vision, and he grabbed her arm in a vice-like grip. Relief flooded through her, and she clung to him. Acting as a human plow, he swept her toward a side street where her mother and Master Leshy were waiting, pressed against a wall. Jax could not see the Grimsby's. Jacqueline, thank the goddess, her mother sobbed, pulling her close in a tight embrace. We need to get out of here, Master Leshy articulated everyone's thoughts. Back to my place, although I'd like nothing better than to be as far from here as possible. They all nodded in bewildered agreement and set off after her. Jax held tight to her mother's hand and Philip's tunic as they were borne along with the tide of people. Her mind had stalled. The queen, dead. As the small group was jostled further and further from the town center, the thought reverberated inside Jax's skull. Her mind kept replaying the images of the red rose blooming from the queen's chest with a still quivering arrow at its center. The look of horror on the faces of king and prince as they turned too late to protect her. The golden shields that rose and enclosed the family like an oyster protecting its pearl. It was not until they were all huddled in Master Leshy's living room, Philip standing at the door next to a pile of just-in-case backpacks, cradling cups of tasteless tea, all listening to the chaos that was beyond the barricaded door, that Jax asked the first question her mentor ever failed to answer. What does this mean for us? No one slept that night. The sounds of chaos rang out through the streets. Shouts from upperite guards and yells from Lorian citizens blurred together, neither side distinguishable from the other. The cacophony left much to the imagination. Jax winced with every clang of steel on steel, and her stomach rolled when the sounds of steel on something much softer filtered into the still room. Women and men shrieked in pain and fear as the guards swept through the streets, determined to quash any residential rebellion, but blinded as to what form it would take. Three times the group huddled in the living room, ready to flee, before Philip assured them it was a false alarm. Better in here than out there he kept muttering to himself. Master Leshy wrung her hands until they turned red and attempted to pace a rut in the floorboards. Ms. Tabart sat with her head in her hands. Jax would have said she was sleeping if she had not been so unnaturally still. She busied herself by making tea when it was needed and looking out from each of the windows in rotation. The mantel clock ticked sluggishly, and each chimed hour made Master Leshy wring her hands harder. Once she muttered, it was our clock, our clock they used. Those bastards, ignorant, foolish. Jax shuddered and moved to the windows in the kitchen. 
Morning seemed reluctant to shed light on the night's activity. Finally, the sun peeked over the hills to the east, streaking through the windows and illuminating the new lines and dark shadows around the eyes of those within the quiet house. Nobody moved. The streets were silent. The day hardly dared to breathe. The full extent of the damage done that night was revealed over the following days. The fountain in the town square was destroyed, trampled and broken bodies lying like discarded toys around its base. Upper and lower citizens seemed equal only in death, their bodies lying side by side. The royal procession had become a fortress overnight in a field on the edge of town. Carriages surrounded by wagons that in turn were surrounded by an ever-vigilant guard pair rotation meant that no Lorian could get within arrow range of the royal family. Not that anyone would have dared. As the riot raged, guard pairs took to the streets. With cold contempt guiding their attacks, they cut down anyone wearing a hooded cloak. Anyone who got in their way was swiftly detained. On the second evening, Jax and Master Leshy stood, hands clasped, at the window of the upstairs workshop and watched in horror as their clock tower went up in flames. The dark sky glowed red above the rooftops and filled with plumes of smoke. With wild eyes, Master Leshy watched as the flames consumed her pride and joy. Hand to her mouth, she folded in on herself, sobs raking her narrow frame. Jack's silent tears streaking her cheeks held tight to her mentor. Philip and Maria hovered nearby, unsure how best to help. They watched until the flames died and darkness swallowed the wreckage. The king, anger's flames burning him from within, had ordered that the clock tower be burned to the ground. The still smoldering remains served as a warning to any rebel sympathizers. Three bodies were found in the wreckage, all too badly burned to be identified. Families most likely too frightened to claim them. A number of heralds summoned the townspeople to attend the king's address the next morning. The sun hid behind a thick blanket of low-lying clouds, flat light making the world look two-dimensional. Marching to the forlorn tolling of a bell, Jax, Mistvart, Master Leshy, and Philip joined the wary stream of citizens to meet once more in the town square. Mind numb as she looked at the ruin of the clock tower, Jax marveled at the difference a few days could make. The memory of vibrant colors and lilting music seemed a lifetime ago in this gray town of mourning. Eyes bloodshot, the king, heavily guarded, surveyed the crowd with a cold gaze. He stood in front of the broken fountain, bodies laid out in rows at his feet. The prince stood to his right, hands clasped behind his back and head lowered. Four older women stood one pace behind the king, one speaking softly into his ear until he nodded and stepped forward to address the crowd. Lorians, the king's voice echoed through the town, though he did not appear to raise it. A faction among you have committed the highest treason. If any of you have information about their identities, step forward and be redeemed. The crowd remained motionless. The king's face hardened and he continued. Your loyalty is misplaced. 
You cannot begin to imagine the grace, strength, and wisdom our queen possessed. He paused. In this time of great sorrow, we must stand firm under one banner. However, we cannot ignore the source of this tragedy. An act of such treason will have its consequences, and those responsible will be punished. The future of the relations between upper and lower realms depends on the trust we are able to rebuild in the coming months. During this time, the Queendom will begin the designated period of mourning. In one year, we shall hold the contest of queens to determine our new ruler. He was struggling to keep his face impassive as emotion threatened to break his composure. One of the women behind him cleared her throat and murmured a few words to him. He nodded adjusted his coat, and continued. We will also reconsider contact between the two lands. Our trade agreement will be revised to better protect the people of each land. Protests began to rise from the crowd. The king held up his hand for silence. Details of this revision will be delivered once decisions have been finalized. People were muttering angrily, and the crowd began to buzz like a hornet's nest. Seeing the volatile nature of the situation, the guard pairs tightened their ranks, and the king, the prince, and the four women were guided off the makeshift podium to where their horses waited restlessly. The king's expression was like thunder. His eyes burned and shifted about the crowd. He glowered at any who dared meet his gaze. The four women strode near him, heads aloft, looking neither left nor right. One of the women, a pinched-faced brunette with dark eyes, bent to speak in the king's ear. Finished, she straightened, and his expression darkened further. Jax's eyes moved to rest on the prince. His expression was different from his father's, his manner different from the four circling women. He stared ahead blankly, hands clasped in front. Shoulders slumped, he seemed to fold into himself. One of the guards gently guided him toward his horse, her partner ready with a firm grip on the lead rope. While his body reacted to the touch automatically, his face registered the change in direction a few seconds later, like an echo after the initial scream has died away. He turned to the guard with that same lost look in his eyes and did what was instructed. The ensemble gathered and moved at the command of a trumpet blast from the head of the line. Like an enormous beast lumbering to its feet, the procession lurched into motion. Jax watched with a yearning she could not explain as the bright carriages were marched solemnly out of town. What promised to be a visit full of festivities fostering the queendom's unity quickly turned into a nightmare. The death of the queen changes everything, and the relations between realms are now in shambles. How will this affect the lower-born citizens? Will Connor be able to forgive Jax's town, or her for that matter? Find out by tuning in to the next episode. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on CamCat Unwrapped as serialized podcasts. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. 
If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. Camcat Unwrapped also offers other Camcat books and podcasts. Also, check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms in our background episodes, where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to Camcat Unwrapped, because Camcat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.